Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, the podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host today, Jingyi Li from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Dr. Neriko Mushador with us to talk about her new edited volume, The Global Education Effect and Japan. Constructing New Borders and Identification Practices. Published by Rutledge in 2020, Dr. Dorr is currently an assistant professor at Ramaboy College in New Jersey, researching and teaching about language and anthropology. In this edited volume, a group of scholars from around the world discuss the problems with the so-called global education in contemporary Japan. They trace the development of the discourses of global education from perspectives of Japan's immigration policy, education policy, and various issues concerning international students in Japan. They also explore possible methods that can further global education in Japan's current educational system. So welcome, Dr. Dor. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I'm very excited. Thank you. That was a very interesting book. I really enjoyed reading it, being um, <laughs> being an international student myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank so, you. Yes. So I'm curious, what is it that you do right now and how does it connect to this book? How did you come to write this book? Um. I'm uh, originally I'm a linguistic anthropologist and also educational anthropologist. Um, so my research started off with um, my my doctoral research was uh, Maori language revitalization in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And after my um, after getting doctorate, I did several postdoctoral research of English as a second language education in community colleges in the U.S and the Japanese as a heritage language education, like a, a weekend Japanese language school. And now I study about study abroad, alternative break service trips, and civic engagement in class. So these are my main research fields, but I've been kind of involved in some research about Japan and mainly through Japanese language education research. I collaborated with Japanese as a foreign language teachers in college who are also um, anthropologists and also critical literacy uh, specialists. And I also did some research about popular culture in Japan, like Jero, who's an African-American singer who sings in Japanese in a genre called Enka, which is kind of like um, heart and soul of Japan type of um, music. Or Pokemon Go, I um, co-edited a book about Pokemon Go, or TV show called Masan that deals with uh, interracial marriage in Japan. Um, so these are kind of tangential interests in Japan, but um, um, how it happened for me to write this book was I have a friend called Greg Paul. He he's um, he was professor he's professor at the university in Japan, Dorchester University, and he was in in my neighborhood in New Jersey. And he called me up and said, "Okay, well, I'm I'm around around you. Do you want to have a cup of coffee?" So we got together and we were just chatting about what's going on in our lives. And I just mentioned, um, "Is it okay if I teach at your college, like for you know during summer?" summer break here and he said yeah so that kind of started to evolve from there and um so i'm gonna be there for a month to teach might as well do some research and it turned out that his college has a very interesting um 
global education programs. It's kind of like a hub of global education in Japan. So we were thinking about doing research and the kind of step developed to talk about getting a grant. Um, the grant called Japanese government grant called Kakenhi, which is, uh, I guess, English word is Jap- Japan Society for the Promotion of Research Grant in Aid for Scientific Research. And the grant is usually for collaborative work. So Greg reached out to his researcher friends, and that's how this kind of research project got developed. And we presented a panel at the Asian Studies meeting in March 2019, and it, that became a kind of like a basis of the book that I'm editing, I edited that you mentioned. And we also asked other researcher friends to write several chapters. So that's how it came, came about. So it kind of overlapped with my study abroad, global education interest in linguistic anthropology and also educational anthropology. But it started out as just kind of chatting with my friend. So that's oh, that is that is so amazing. Oh, a cup of coffee turned into this amazing volume. Yeah, it was very interesting collaboration. I met a lot of people through through this, so that was a fun project. Wow, that's that that's a career goal right there. <laughs> so for listeners who uh, haven't read this book yet. Can you tell us briefly what um, all these chapters are about? Okay. So the running theme of this book is this concept that I came up with called global education effect. So what that means is like the impact of so-called global education initiatives on institutions, institutional setups, as well as the individual practices and perceptions regarding like differences, communities, or sense of belonging. So that's a... um, main theoretical concept that we wanted to explore. And we focused on the case of Japan or related to Japan. And Japan create Japan has a very um, interesting case, although it applies to other cases around the world, and um, which is um, Japan has been making a lot of efforts to globalize education, quote unquote, quote, globalize education. And that comes with comes in two forms, inviting, trying to invite and entice more study abroad students from abroad and also creating an English medium education in higher education um, so that students don't have to have full proficiency in Japanese language. So that's a, on the one hand, there's a global education effort. And then on the other hand, um, Japanese society is experiencing shrinking young workforce, more older population, the societies, the percentage of the older population is getting bigger. Um, so they, they need a more workforce, young workforce. So they need more immigrants. But at the same time, there's a prevalent xenophobia and and it's a lot to do with myth of Japan as a homogeneous nation. So there's a resistance in public to invite a lot of immigrants. So there's... So these two contexts created this thing called regimes of mobility, like kind of like a two-tier system. So for middle-class students, it's called global education, and it's celebrated. But on the other hand, immigrants you, who tend to be no, um, lower-class or working-class people, um, their education to learn about Japan, learn, adapt to Japanese society, which is often considered as global education for middle-class students, is fra- uh, that kind of education is framed as Japanese language education or training of human resources, but not as global education. So it created the kind of two-tier system in Japan. Um, and that also inter- intersect with Japan's position as often exoticized as cultural other from in relation to the so-called West, quote-unquote West. And it's oftentimes exoticization from outside, but also self-exoticization within Japan. 
And at the same time, Japan is considered as a developed nation that attracts students and labor force from quote-unquote developing countries. So with this all um, mixed together, we can try to understand how the border of Japan versus non-Japanese, as well as students versus labor force, get constructed, subverted, erased, and it becomes a very, very complex process. So that's the major running theme of the book. And we are hoping that that creates uh, something appealing to people who are not studying about Japan in terms of the, how the demographic changes, like decreasing youth population, and that affects economic um, processes and how that intersects with race politics, like xenophobia, and also the regimes of mobility of this globalization, celebration of globalization, but at the same time, restricting global mobility if it com- when it comes to non-white, non-mainstream immigrant population. So these are kind of overall um, idea of this volume. Wow, and, that's, yeah. Sorry. Ah, it's okay. So do you want me to go through like each chapter, maybe each part? Um, yeah, sure. So the, awesome. Thank you. So the volume is made up, of, made up of three parts. So part one is a kind of background, theoretically, and a kind of social, cultural, economic context. And then second part is a global education effect on daily operation and student perception. And the part three is about um, how the teachers, the professors are coming up with interesting designs to counter and try to engage with this border construction. And they're trying to subvert this conventional border construction. So in uh, part one, setting about the setting of this global education in Japan, there are three chapters. And the first chapter is introduction. Um, I, I wrote the introduction chapter and I talk about the concept of borders, Japan, concept of Japan as a kind of homogeneous entity and global education, what that, what that means. So it's more like a theoretical overview. And chapter two is titled, entitled Tracing the Developments of Global Education Effects in Japanese Higher Education. Discourses, Policy and Practice. And is written by Greg Paul, Hiroshi Ota and Mako Kawano. And they talk about Japanese government recent efforts to globalize Japan's higher education with a kind of very institutional focus and um, that kind of effect, what kind of effect it has at the institutional level. And chapter three, the last chapter of this part one, uh, is entitled Japan's New Immigration Policy and Society's Responses by Uichi Kamiyoshi. And he examines the... um, what kind of effort is done in Japanese government to globalize education, but his focus is more on the Japanese government's struggle to balance its need for labor force and xenophobic public reaction to immigration. So he sets this background of how the policies has been developing, the government kind of trying to balance these two issues that I mentioned earlier. So that's that's part one um, for the background of this book. And um, now that we are at the end of part one, uh, I want to go back to a few points that you mentioned earlier. Um, So you mentioned that global education, um, while while many people might think of it as just this uh, students going to Japan to study, uh, it actually has more complexity than that for um, people or students from different countries. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Um, What is 
the the problem with global education. The term uh, you you mentioned how it ties to the myth of Japan being a homogenous country, and、um, what? How does that contribute to these issues of global education? Okay, so actually that would connect well to the chapters in part two, but、um, the concept of global education tend to focus on a particular group and particular type of education, and so that the middle class study abroad students tend to be a focus, and the government money was used on that to encourage them to come to Japan and do the research,、uh, do the education in Japan, as well as.、Um, There's also encouragement for Japanese students to go abroad to study abroad as well, but they ignore the immigrants. So because officially there's not supposed to be any immigrants in Japan, and the immigrant people learning about Japan, so the kind of education they are receiving don't get celebrated, and that applies to a lot of different countries as well. And my other research in in the U.S.、Um, in higher education, oftentimes in college. Global education is usually dealt with in the study abroad office, and a lot of times that's about American students studying abroad. And there's a lot of encouragement by the government and other organizations to for students to go study abroad. And students with immigrant background who has global competence, so-called global competence, that's always oftentimes very celebrated in study abroad discourses. A lot of times, students with immigrant background has that already. I know a lot of times students, such students have bilingual or multilingual、um, competence, but these competence are not really celebrated oftentimes. And whatever that involves with students with immigrant background, they tend to go to, like institutionally speaking, they go to、um, equity and diversity offices or multicultural education. And somehow there's a two separate system. In the U.S. as well, so that kind of reflects. That's where I'm coming from. And when I heard about Japan's case, I thought that's a kind of very extreme case of where、um, study global education, which focuses on study abroad, is celebrated, and immigrant experience, who has what global education is looking for, and yet totally ignored and almost erased. And they were discussed in a very different ways. And The reason why they are discussed in different ways is important because it's a lot to do with the marginalization or discrimination, equity and diversity issue. But at the same time, I feel their experience should be or their their competence should be celebrated as much as study abroad students who spend one semester or a couple of years abroad and came back with another language ability to speak another language. So that's where it connects to my wider research and my my wider.、Um, Discussions, but Japan provided an interesting case, and I met Milos Debner, Adam Komitsarov, who does this kind of who do, who do this kind of research. So that was a really good match for me, and I was very excited to work with them. And can you tell us more about part two, so that we can、uh, come back to this problem with international students later, perhaps? Okay. Okay. So the part two is about the、uh, um, global education effect on daily operation and student perceptions. So chapter four by Milos Debna is entitled "Ryugakuse: Students, Workers, or Migrants?" Question mark. The multiple meanings and borders borders in international students in Japan. So his chapter focuses on this category category of "Ryugakuse," which usually tra- get translated as foreign students. 
and they were oftentimes either considered as a much needed high skilled workers or low skilled workers like admitted through the back door and they're often called immigrants in a uh, with a negative connotation. So he goes through the like, history of that, and he also interviews the Ryugakse themselves and uh, try to uh, tease out their understanding of their experience, how they feel racism, whereas you see other students being celebrated, depending on how they are positioned as immigrants or um, high skill or low skill. So that's a chapter four. And chapter five looks at the, the other side. So Adam Komisarov's um, chapter entitled Global Education's Outcomes and Improvement, the Role of Social Markers of Acceptance in Constructing Constructing Japanese Identity and In-Group Boundaries. So he interviewed students in um, Japanese university and he analyzed the social markers that each student used to include or exclude people for, coming from outside Japan. So he talks about sociolinguistic adaptation, socioeconomic adaptation, cultural assimilation, and see um, how much assimilation they need to have, or it still doesn't matter, that kind of complex situation of social markers. And he, he told me recently he edited, he co-edited a special issue in a journal of um, journal called International Journal of Intercultural Relations with Chan Hung Long. And the title of the special issue is um, Viewing Intercultural Adaptation and Social Inclusion Through Constructs of National Identity. So he's um, developing his his chapter into new directions. And chapter six um, is by myself and also with Greg Paul and Roy Hedrick III. And it's entitled Post-Study Abroad Students. It's actually in a quotation mark. Uh, Post-Study Abroad Students, another quotation mark, um, Never Study Abroad Students and the Politics of Belonging. Global Education Effects of Japan's English Medium Campus. So in this chapter, we talk about the label of study abroad students and how some of the students who may be categorized as study abroad students in, in a general term refuse to be labeled that way because they, they were planning to live in Japan, so they are not study abroad students. They are not abroad. They are at their new home or irrelevance, irrelevance of ethnic background. They didn't think their background mattered in being considered as study abroad students or not, or their legal status because of their parentage. So if your parent is Japanese, one parent is Japanese and they are Japanese, but they may have felt they are study abroad students because they didn't identify as Japanese. So a lot of complexity in um, among students in this English medium classes. So that's what we... The, inter- the interviews we analyzed and we tried to challenge the monolingualist binary of English and Japanese. English medium as a kind of global medium and that's a global education if the English medium is used on campus and what's that mean to the identity of students. So that's what chapter six is about. And the last chapter of this section, chapter seven, um, called Translanguaging Practices Within an Ideology of Monolingualism. Two autoethnographic perspectives by Nok and Du and Greg Paul. So this chapter is autoethnographic examination of um, how their perception of linguistic border crossing changed throughout their experience. So Anne talks about her experience in Vietnam in English foreign language classroom, and she now studies at the time of writing. She studied in English medium program in Japan. 
And Greg Paul talks about a fieldwork site in Mexico when he was doing fieldwork and also as employed as an American, quote-unquote American, in Japan and how they are experiencing language practices and perception of the border crossing in language um, has changed throughout the years. Thank you. So um, I'd like to begin with asking about this um, concept that you discussed in part one and then recurred in part two. So you mentioned that there is certain ambiguity to this uh, concept of border, even though many might just imagine it being the border between Japan and the outside world. But obviously, you and your co-authors don't think that's the single case. So can you tell us more about uh, the problems with the definition of border? Yes. So especially in the context of study abroad, the global education, but especially study abroad, there's a clear-cut understanding of students, like Japanese versus non-Japanese students. And study abroad student is considered as non-Japanese student, legally and culturally and everything else. But a lot of times, um, students have like legally Japanese citizenship, and they might not be eligible for study, like certain funding for study abroad students, but they feel like they were grew up, they grew up abroad, so why can't they have access to this funding, especially for study abroad students? So that's a kind of legal status. But also the sense of belonging, and they feel they come to Japan, and one student told me that other study abroad students are so excited about being in Japan and ex- like exoticizing or how unique Japan is, but she felt... Japan is not really abroad. She's used to it. She used to go to Japanese language school abroad, and she didn't feel that excitement of encountering difference, which is usually celebrated in study abroad context. Like study abroad is adventure, experience something new, but she didn't feel that way. So then that made her question, like, who am I? Am I studying abroad or am I... So there's a different aspect of students resisting the discourses in study abroad that study abroad that construct this clear-cut borderline. And some students, as I mentioned earlier, that resisted to be called study abroad because she she was born and raised in UK and came to Japan as study abroad, but then she decided to stay. So then she the moment she felt she's gonna but she's gonna stay in Japan, she bought a house, she's planning to work in Japan, then this concept of Japan being abroad to her became very offensive to her. Is that something that excludes her from becoming part of Japan? So it's really to do with where they feel their home is. And study abroad of, discourse often ignore the student's sense of being being home, where is their home. So post-study abroad student, the concept of post-study abroad students that we used in a in a title is the student from UK who, who felt she used to be a study abroad student, but no longer. A never study abroad student, another concept that we came up with, is a student who who wasn't really sure where she belonged. And maybe Japan wasn't abroad because she's familiar with Japan, or but then still some aspects are alien to them. So there's a no clear-cut border between Japan versus non-Japan, because a lot of students have different experience, different sense of belonging, and also linguistic proficiency as well. And even if you can speak Japanese proficiently, they may feel alienated or they may feel they are not home. So all these different aspects 
aren't really reflected in study abroad discourses that's often used in the field. Yes, that's such a good discussion. I mean, mm-hmm. being a, <laughs> I have been an international student for more than a decade now, and I definitely feel this uh, sense of loss of belonging that you describe. Um, can you tell us more about how, um, why is this um, identification issue so important during the age of global education? And this, you mentioned um, that language abilities also become a problem when they go to another country or maybe when they go back to a country, which is, I think, is discussed in uh, Chapter 7, um, this uh, issue about monolingualism and uh, translanguaging practices. Could you tell us a bit more about this uh, perspective? Yeah, yeah. So this is a chapter written by um, Anne and Greg, so they talk about um, how a lot of times the English as a foreign language classroom, you are not allowed to speak anything but English. And that contrasted with this English medium program in Japan where English is supposed to be used, but at the same time that was subverted often. So students might talk in whatever language that they are comfortable with when the teacher is not listening, or sometimes teacher themselves subvert by bringing in some Japanese words, although you are not supposed to. But then that creates this kind of comical relief, especially um, precisely because it's supposed to be English only. So there's this kind of monolingual ideology, like no, monolingual norm, English norm in this classroom, but breaking that, breaking itself becomes funny because of this norm that exists. So it's almost like acknowledging the norm by breaking it. So there's a kind of complex um, process goes on. And then also she talks about right outside the classroom, though, in this English medium program, there's a lot of translanguaging, so-called translanguaging practices, which contrasted with her experience in Vietnam in English as foreign language classroom. So they discuss about how all these practices highlight the monolingualism in a lot of language classes. And the translanguaging itself, though, I have a, I have written elsewhere about the issue that I have is a concept itself because translanguage practices celebrates this mixing of different languaging, uh, languages, sorry, but it's based on the understanding that we can identify language, what word belongs to which language, and there are units of language, like a linguistic boundary of, for example, English as one language and then French as one language, for example, and um, we can identify which word belongs to which which itself is a very monolingualistic way of thinking. So, for example, if if a researcher look at the language, like sentence, say, I ate a croissant at a restaurant, and if the person who said that said, okay, I'm translanguaging, it's one thing. But if the researcher look at it and say, this is a translanguaging or not translanguaging, really depends on the researcher's identification, the researcher's judgment of which word belong to which language. So, for example, if you think croissant is French and restaurant is also a French word, this sentence can be considered as translanguaging. But if you think croissant and restaurants are English words now, they are English words now, then it's not a translanguaging. So for researchers to judge a statement as either translanguaging or monolingual statement is a very problematic process because it's a very 
especially that uh, trans call, calling that translanguaging is a lot to do with researchers' judgment and based on the understanding of there's an English as a separate language from French, and that's a very monolingualistic way of thinking. So it's I'm, I have a problem with that as an uh, translanguaging as an analytical concept. But if you consider that as a folk term for the person who's speaking is acknowledging I'm doing a translanguaging practice or I'm not doing translanguaging practice, that's okay as a folk term. But as an analytical term, I have a problem with that. And I can't wrote about that in different places. But Well, that's, that's a lot to take into consideration when discussing this issue. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Well, what about part three? Um, I, I think, so this looks like your uh, proposals, uh, proposals from the, these scholars mm-hmm. to uh, tackle this issue with global education. Can you tell us um, what are some of the things you think that we could do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like, yeah, thank you. So I like these chapters. Um, this is not my practice, but other scholars' practices, researchers' practices I really like. So the part three is about teaching practice and designs to unsettle and question this conventional understanding of borders. So chapter eight, entitled Multicultural Team Ethnography as a Border Crossing Practice, Reflections from Two Returning Academics at a Japanese University. And this chapter is written by Yuki Imoto and Tomoko Tokunaga. And they talk about, so they teach at two different universities and they collaborated. Um, their, their own classes worked together and created team ethnography of this city called Shin Okubo in Tokyo that's known as um, the place with a lot of immigrants from different parts of the world. So students visited and did the team ethnography. And in that process, they talked about what's multiculturalism and what's not multiculturalism. Like one one person thought this is a, such a multiculturalist state uh, space. And the other person said, oh, this is so Japanese to treat the different culture in this way. So different perspective of what's multiculturalism and what's Japanese-ness came about. And in that process, the professors, Yuki Imoto and Tomoko Tokunaga themselves realized the different ways of looking at things. So this is an autoethnographic investigation of students and professors trying to challenge each other with the concept of where the border of Japanese-ness or border of cultures in multiculturalism. And chapter nine by Saeri Yamamoto is entitled Discussing Controversial Special Issue, Social Issues with Students from Culturally and Linguistically Different Backgrounds, Implications for Second Class Foreign Language Teaching. And she talks about this specific teachable moment when students disagreed with the labeling of the sea, the, the piece of like the ocean, piece of ocean between Japan and Korea. Um, and she used that as a teachable moment to challenge the perception of what it means to name a place. And she documented the back and forth and the changing thinking among students. And it was a very interesting process. And chapter 10 uh, by Yuri Kumagai is entitled Ekkyo Bungaku as Crossing the Border of Language, Implications for Learners of Japanese. And she talks about the class that she taught herself, um, advanced Japanese language course called Ekkyo Bungaku. So Ekkyo Bungaku means border crossing literature. 
So the author whose whose first language is not Japanese, but they write in Japanese and they go back and forth with different um, words from different languages. And in the process of teaching that to students who are learning Japanese in the U.S. college, she documents how that class classroom practices challenge students to understand what language borders are and think of themselves as neither insider nor outsider, but they could claim the ownership of the language even if the Jap- if Japanese is not their first language. So she discusses this process that happens in classroom. Chapter 11, entitled The Use of Border Dynamics for Educational Purposes by Yuko Abe. She talks about um, a couple of projects that she she led where international students worked with local community to entertain tourists from abroad or the study abroad students from two different Japanese universities introduced to each other their home university, the host university in Japan and how that subverted the, some of the borders that they thought they had. So these are the projects um, they designed with the how how to deal with this kind of conventional border and how to subvert it, how to challenge it, and how to engage students in that process. Thank you. You mentioned so many different aspects about how how we can maybe provide more um, solutions to the problem with the border and difficulties that international students or uh, students who are studying in the globe are facing. And that actually ties into my next question. We all know that in this uh, pandemic, Japan's global education industry is really taking a hit now that students cannot go into Japan. And I don't think many of the Japanese students who are scheduled to study in other countries can actually leave and just start a new life in the other countries. How do you think um, this aspect adds on to the whole global education issue? How does it complicate this whole thing? And what can we do or what can the Japanese government do to help with this issue? Eventually, end, but in the meantime, how to survive. And there's a lot of online experiences, look at the photos and stuff like that, or videos. Um, live stream and things like that. And one thing that kind of struck me was one of the advertisements said um, authentic immersion experience through online. And that goes totally against this conventional notion of immersion where you have to be there, physically be there to experience. So I kind of felt it was a very interesting twist and what it would become. And I think this is a temporary process and you'll go back to um, similar than before. But And I have a, a whole different discussion about concept of immersion as well, but I'm not going to go into that right now. But So that's one aspect. But I have been always advocating global education to be not necessarily studying abroad. So one of the things is what I mentioned and this volume is about is immigrant experience. People with immigrant, immigrant background, they have a lot of experience that's coveted in global education in general and yet ignored. So highlighting that and not necessarily... Um, going to immigrant community in a domestic context as studying abroad, but because that itself creates what's abroad and what's not even within the country, like basically creating the border. So 
makes the study abroad as something has to do with the border crossing, which itself is a problem as well. So, but at least kind of include, expand the notion of difference to the people with immigrant background. So that's one thing. But another thing that I've been doing um, to challenge this concept of regime of mobility in global education is um, to find the difference anywhere. So I like this piece by Ray McDermott and Erwin Varen, who are anthropologists that talked about how we we are different in millions of different ways, but we only focus a particular type of difference. And it's a lot to do with the social cultural environment that push us to notice, but ignore other kinds of, notice certain kinds of difference, but ignore other kinds of difference. So I really like that argument. And study abroad or global education in general force us to focus on the national border and difference in that kind of cultural difference that's overlapped is a national border. So in the end, um, we are perpetuating this kind of difference concept of that cultural difference based on national difference. So I'm trying to look for different kinds of um, difference or border that students can understand and deal with and learn to live with. So the class project I've been doing is called Opposition, um, that living with difference kind of project. And what I ask students to do is focus on a certain political issue or social issues that they're passionate about, like gun control, LGBTQ rights, um, immigration issues, um, abortion issues, or several, whatever the issue that they are very passionate about, and then find somebody who has the opposite viewpoint from that. And past several years, this kind of political division became very big in the U.S. And um, a lot of times they don't talk to each other and they consider the other, whoever that has the opposite view from you as like stupid or ignorant. And a lot of demonization occurred on both sides. So I challenge the student to find somebody and try to understand where their view comes from and why they feel that way. And also how their experience of somebody who has the opposite viewpoint and how they feel about it. So that these are the kind of questions that they have to ask the person that they chose to interview, but they have to interview themselves the same questions. So, and then try to understand, or at least give an opportunity to engage in conversation with somebody with the opposite viewpoints. And a lot of students came up with very interesting understanding and finding out commonality and understanding where they're coming from. And that's exactly what it's cultural relativism that anthropology often emphasize and also global education and study abroad emphasize how to understand somebody with different ideas and practices and how to how to learn to live with them even if you don't agree with them. So that's something that I've been doing in my intro to anthropology classes. And that's something you can do without leaving a country, but at the same time engaging in the same same question of how to live with difference. So that's something that I'm hoping that could be incorporated, not necessarily being called global education, but reach the same goal of understanding each other and reaching out and not demonizing, not dismissing somebody different from you. And um, do you think that online learning, online studying in this age of pandemic adds another layer to the already complex um, global education issue. Yes, when it comes to online, it's a lot to do with access to internet, access to Wi-Fi, access to stable the connections to internet and things like that. So yes, in that top of my head, that's the kind of first thing that comes to mind. When, especially when I'm doing remote teaching, that's the issue that comes up as well. So 
yeah, that would be one layer that I can think of. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, now that we're running out of time, can I just ask one last question?、Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think universities or learning institutions can do to help facilitate students who are struggling with their、uh, with um, their self identification or just being in a completely different country, a different culture? What can the school Do to help them. Um, in terms of the psychological issues or cultural adaptation kind of thing, or I I guess both. Yes. Um, there's a different layer to that. Probably in terms of staffing. Um, they could have they could hire people with different background. Always helps. Um, available counseling. We used to. I used to do this project called Linguistic Landscape, where what we see in on campus, like what kind of language is used, and having language that from the diverse languages on campus, just to be there to just present, oftentimes helps.、Uh, according to the, my students who interview different people about how they feel about the.、Um, About the linguistic landscape, and they also came up with this professors or staff members who can speak more than one language to identify that on their office, saying like in in the case of my, my case, I'm Japanese, and then if you speak that language, international students speak that language, they know who who they can go to talk to. So these are kind of anecdotal things, but、um, yeah, counseling just makes it makes it open to be different. Would help at the staffing level, at the linguistic landscape level, and also program levels as well. And a lot of times, professors' approach to how students writing papers in English—if that would be the problem—then how does professor deal with it? And if there's enough support for professors so that students can get help, and also professor can get help in terms of how to approach students who's writing good paper, but English grammar that they require students might not be there. So then, the professor could get some support in that aspect would be helpful as well. Thank you. Yes, I completely agree. That's a very good point.、Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Yes, I really, I really enjoyed.、Um, I'm really glad that you and your co-authors are bringing up this issue, and letting the letting the society、um, to uh, ask uh, asking more attention on this issue from society, because international students are,、um, in my knowledge, a rather fragile group of people and.、Um, It's very easy for them, for us, to struggle without knowing that、um, we're not alone in this. There are a、mm-hmm. lot of other people out there who are going through the same difficulties, and it's not completely our fault. No. So yes. <laughs> yes. So I'm really glad that you and your co-authors are writing on this issue. Thank you. Thank you. For our listeners, if you're also interested in global education and learning abroad, especially when it concerns Japan, 
make sure to check out this book, The Global Education Effect in Japan, edited by Neriko Musador. This is Jenny Lee from the New Books on Japanese Studies channel. Until our next episode, goodbye.